0: Good evening, everybody. Thank you for joining us. This is our last session of Unlocking the Bible. What um, What I'd like to do to start with is to inquire, whether there any questions from last week? Matt has a question. Anybody else while he finds it? False start. Maybe you asked it, I just thought, let me just recap what was. Okay. No questions? Okay. So this week, what I'd like to do is I'm going to look at the um, wisdom books in the Old Testament. Last week, we did an exercise in exegesis on one of the New Testament books. We looked at a text from from one of the Gospels, from the Gospel of John. Today, I'd like to look at just a, a brief overview of what wisdom literature is, what poetry in the Bible is, And I'm going to speed through it relatively quickly, although there's going to be space and time for questions, and then we're going to exegete an entire psalm. And and we're going to put into practice some of the lessons that we learned in the first few weeks, and we're going to see what's hidden in the text, if anything. So, wisdom literature is a genre of literature um, commonly found in the ancient Middle Eastern cultures. Most famous of these are the wisdom books found in the Bible, namely Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. It differs from other books in the Old Testament primarily because it was written by sages rather than prophets or priests. Um, sages tended to use observations of the natural world, and and uh, Solomon, probably the most famous and the principal writer of Proverbs, um, spoke of Proverbs as um, having the purpose of to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the symbol, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Um, Wisdom, as we find it in Scripture, is not a matter of intellectual ability or age, but rather a reflection of how we relate to God. In the Old Testament, God is the source of all wisdom, and the purpose of wisdom is to please God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. When you read um, somebody being referred to as a fool in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, we tend to think of that as somebody who's stupid. It's not that at all. It typically means somebody who is being unwise um, and and typically somebody who is being a rebel, somebody who is uh, resisting God's ways and resisting God's wisdom. So... The wisdom literature is exactly the opposite of that. What would a fool do? What would someone who is wise do? Some comments on interpretation. Firstly, it is important when approaching wisdom literature uh, not to take too literal an approach in interpretation. There are times, obviously, when it's clearly literal, but there are times when it's not. For example, in Proverbs, wisdom is described as standing in the streets, but it's clearly not an actual person, rather a picture to help us towards a deeper understanding of what is being conveyed. The books of wisdom in the Bible are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs. Um, Job, which was actually the first book written in the Bible, not Genesis. It's the most ancient of the texts, um, joins Ecclesiastes among wisdom writing as a kind of anti-wisdom, countering traditional wisdom while wrestling with the difficult topics of suffering and God's justice and goodness. Why do we say anti-wisdom? Because, because Job and his friends have a long discussion about what sin is, what the consequences are, what is, what is wisdom, what is righteousness. And, and most of what is recorded is actually not wise. Um, God comes in at the end and and overturns their, their wisdom and describes it as folly. It's written as a combination of dialogue and monologue. Um, it's best read in one sitting, obviously not all at the same time, but, but consequentially uh, to avoid the problem of only hearing one element of the argument. If, if you were to just uh, kind of wave your finger, open the book and, and put your finger somewhere in Ecclesiastes um, or, or in Job rather, you would potentially wind up with something that uh, was not wisdom. Psalms. This is a collection of many different types of Psalms. They're written as poetry, allowing for the deep expression of emotions, faith, allowing for connection with God. They're an integral part of any service um, in, in the temple, as they were easy to remember and carried a powerful message. Poetic devices found commonly in general. Poetry are used here in the Psalms as well, as more broadly in other books. Simile, metaphor and alliteration are some of the devices. We'll look at others. We would use as he used broadly in literature. We can even find acrostic poems being employed. I'll explain what that is in a moment. Ecclesiastes. This is probably my favorite book in the Bible. Um, it's it's really interesting, and there's so much happening in it. If you if you just have a closer look. Ecclesiastes has been understood to be an apologetic work attempting to recommend faith by way of answering negative arguments. So, what uh, One of the ways of, of developing, presenting arguments in a classical style would be to set up an imaginary opponent's argument and then to tear it down. And we find that at work in Ecclesiastes. It's written in the book in the form of a monologue and uses an almost secular position by arguing that life is meaningless. There are two characters, the teacher who submits the negative arguments, and the author who comments on those arguments. It's not until the end that we discover the the author's true aim, which is to counsel people to find satisfaction in God. This is a great book to to use as an illustration that who wrote it and when they wrote it is quite important. This is is thought to have been written by uh, Solomon quite a long way down the line in his life, when he had become very wealthy, when he had had many relationships with many women, had 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 access to all of the pleasures um, available to anybody at any time, and comes to the conclusion that none of that stuff satisfies, only God can satisfy. This highlights the important hermeneutic principle of reading through an entire book in one sitting. Again, I don't mean start and and end in, in one go, but rather that it should be read sequentially. Proverbs, these are a collection of wise sayings, statements that describe general life principles. The, the focus of Proverbs is to focus on patterns of behavior and practical steps to walk in a righteous manner and to live in blessing and favor in life. Um, there's, there's, a lo- there's a lot of emphasis on relational integrity um, and on making wise decisions and the consequence of not making wise decisions. They're not legal guarantees, but are rather wise guidelines to follow. That's not to say they are, they are not instructive. They are. Um, but as sometimes people use it like a guarantee, and it's not necessarily a guarantee. Bad stuff happens to good people. Proverbs are written in such a way as to be easy to memorize, learn, and engage with the text. Um, it's important to read Proverbs as a collection and in relation to other scriptures found throughout the Old and New Testaments. Song of Songs, this is an interesting book. This is a love poem in which in addition to being a representation of romantic love between a man and a woman is also capable of representing the relationship between God and his chosen people Israel and also between Jesus and the church. depends on how you read it. It's, It's capable of several different constructions. It's beautifully written. There's some amazing poetry in it, which is also used as a birds and bees instruction booklet for soon to be wed couples on the joys of physical love between husband and wife. And, and when you start reading it in that light, in some of those instructional things, um, it, it can be quite uh, graphic. Uh, in, in fact, for quite a long time in the church, it was kind of frowned upon to visit the Song of Songs because it had uh, some lurid overtones. But but it, it's a demonstration that God is, is interested in all of human, human life and is intended to uh, be a depiction of of physical love between husband and wife as well. Poetry. How does poetry fit into the Bible? One of the main vehicles of communication wisdom literature is poetry, which, after narratives, is the main form of literature in the Bible, found in Psalms, the narratives, and the prophetic books. You'll find often in, in the prophets, they burst into poems. And, and they'll they'll cry out, Oh Israel. And, and there's this beautiful, stirring poetry, usually uh, pointing at Israel's shortcomings and how they need to get their act together. But it, it's important to be read as poetry. Poetry is distinctive because it makes use uh, of unique features such as figurative language, metaphors, similes and other similar devices to stoke the imagination and paint a mental picture for the reader or hearer. The Hebrew language lends itself very well to poetic exp- expression due to its inherent emotional and evocative qualities and the communication of abstract ideas and clear images. Most Hebrew poetry was delivered orally, therefore using literary devices such as reiteration and rhythm uh, makes it more memorable. Poetic expression is found throughout the books of the Bible. Um, Here here are a few. I don't know if it's big enough to read. And please forgive me if I mispronounce any of this. Um, these are a few devices or techniques that are used in poetic literature. Parallelism, also known as Hebrew parallelism. This is a structure where every part of the stanza or line consists of two parallel parts or lines. The first line heightens the meaning and impact, while the second line repeats, contrasts, heightens, or illustrates. You will, you will probably not be thinking of parallelism while you're reading it. But you'll be aware of its effect. Um, o Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? Um, the, you see that there's there's a, a repetition, um, and and often there is a development in the second line. The goal is to allow time for the thought to have its effect on the reader or hearer, or reveal another facet of a matter. Chiasm. Um, this is a device which reverses words or. or orders or ideas in successive parallel sections, forming a symmetrical mirror image. Uh, Isaiah 6 verse 10, make the heart of his people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they may see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, turn and be healed. You see that eyes is the last idea expressed and it's the uh, first idea dealt with in the second line, and it, it goes in in converse order. So the one is a mirror image of the other. Um, Paranomasia, or play on words, my absolute favorite. Um, puns, the Bible is full of puns, full of it, absolutely full of it. Um, and And a lot of it we miss because we don't understand the Hebrew or the Greek especially the Hebrew, and, and frequently words are used that have the same sound or, or, or look similar because it's, it's a very vi- visual language, and, and they, they are uh, intertwined in meaning as you read the text. Um, in Isaiah 5-7, the words for justice and bloodshed differ by one letter uh, in Hebrew as do the words for righteousness and weeping, and they're the opposite. So you can imagine hearing hearing the Hebrew, they'd they'd sound like they're the same, but there's a slight shift, and actually they mean the opposite thing. Alliteration, lines beginning with the same letter of the alphabet, um, such as Psalm 109. Each line within each group of lines, or strophe, begins with the same Hebrew letter. Acrostics, each line begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There's some examples there. Assonance, that's where similar sounding words are used. Um, The words for almond branch and watching over differ by one vowel sound in the Hebrew. And that's especially significant because remember that Hebrew only records the consonants. So the the vowel sounds are are largely inferred. There are some vowel um, descriptors, uh, yods and dalets, but but by and large, um, context would determine how you would say it. Right, I, I rushed through that because I want to spend quite a bit of time interpreting the whole of Psalm 22. And, and I've chosen this Psalm specifically to wrap up our series on, on hermeneutics because it's such a great example of how a text can have several layers and the context is so vital. Um, psalm twenty-two is a psalm. Let me tell you a few things about it, and then we'll we'll apply hermeneutic um, disciplines to it. It's, it's a psalm of David. Um, it's a, a psalm written at a time when he was in great emotional distress, uh, pursued and surrounded by his enemies, looking to God for for deliverance. And and you can tell. That, that this clearly lines up with events in his life. You can, you can, um, you can actually track it at a portion of the narrative text um, dealing with his life. So we understand that it's written in the Old Testament. It's written by David. Um, it's written about his personal experiences. It's written as a poem, and it's written as a prayer. That's the background. As we read it, and and as you bear those things in mind, what are some of the things we might be looking for considering that this is a poem written by David? What is the significance of David in the meta-narrative of God's dealing with humanity between Adam and or between Genesis and Revelation? Any thoughts? Sin against God, but yet after that, God still said, you are, what do you say? Um, You're a man after my own heart. Man after his own heart. So, absolutely. So, there's, we expect as we read um, anything written by David, there to be a degree of intimacy with God. That's important. Anything else? That's very good. He's a type of Christ. This is a great example of typology. So, you remember, we looked at types. Types um, are found throughout the the Bible, and in many times in the Old Testament, we have a type which represents God or represents Jesus um, in part, and it's a it's a form of of uh, practical, visual, literal prophecy, walking, breathing, living prophecy. Anything else you might want to think about in David? His lineage. His lineage exactly right. What about his lineage? Um, Jesus. Yeah. So the, the answer was his lineage, because, because David is the line of the Messiah. And there are prophetic texts in the Old Testament that speak of of a root coming out of Jesse of, of the Messiah rising up in the line of David. Absolutely right. So bearing all of those ideas in mind, we're now going to have a look at this text and we can see see what we can draw out of it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Anyone read this anywhere else? <laughs> anywhere else? On the cross. On the cross. On the cross. Correct, on the cross, as as we've heard from Sandy, Jesus cries out, "Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani." He was quoting the psalm, and and in the text, in the, in the context, it, it's not a question of, "God, where are you? God, why is this taking so long?" is really what it means, and and the context in which he utters this, these words, Jesus utters these words, is really pivotally important. Because the Hebrew hearers of those words would think Psalm 22. What's in Psalm 22? Why why is Jesus drawing Psalm 22 to our attention as he's dying on the cross? And 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 the moment that Jesus cries this out, cries out, is is the time where where God pours out all sin of all humanity of all time into Jesus, and he becomes sin on our behalf. So this is. This is a massive moment in in the meta-narrative of God, in the grand overarching story of God's dealing with humanity. This is a high-water mark. This is really critical. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, and I find no rest. If you just read those those two lines... If you got your morning devotional verse, random devotional verse, and it popped up and and the the verse was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day and you do not answer and by night I find no rest. How encouraged would you be? (laughs) Probably not so much, right? But who's ever felt like that? Yeah. So. So what's so profound about this is, is David is, is drawing us into his experience and it's an experience that we can identify with. And, and it gives us courage that even a, a man after, after God's own heart, one who has known profound intimacy with God, would feel like this at a moment, but that it's not forever. Not only that, but by implication, that's what Jesus was thinking too. And in fact, I'm going to make the argument that Jesus redeems this text. Let's see how it goes. Yet you are wholly enthroned on the praises of Israel. What does that mean, enthroned on the praises of Israel? What does it mean? Could be. Uh, the think of the mercy seat. David had the worshipers who continuously uh, in the temple. That's true. Yeah, he absolutely did. Just, just think of it poetically. God is not literally sitting on people's songs. What's the, the image? who is enthroned who has a throne god or a king so so if you if you if you just take a step back and consider what that could mean poetically that could mean god reigns when his people praise him or as his people praise him so it's not just that he's enthroned on the praise of israel but actually As God's people praise him, he reigns, he is honoured, he's lifted up. More than that, when a deity in in ancient Near Eastern, Middle Eastern uh, culture, when a deity sat, that meant they had conquered their enemies. So to enter into your temple and sit as a god, lowercase g, would be to have conquered your enemies and to rule and reign with your enemies as your footstool. So it's it's very significant that that God is described as enthroned on the praise of Israel because it means that he has overcome, vanquished his enemies, he is ruling and reigning, and his foot is on the neck of his enemies. All in one line. It's quite cool. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. What's he referring to? This is the king of Israel. What's he referring to? Deliverance from Egypt. Most likely, not exclusively, because there are other times when the people of Israel cried out to God and they were delivered. But but when you see delivered, Hebrew people would be thinking Exodus. Delivery from deliverance from Egypt and 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 the dominion of the Egyptian gods. So we've already read that that God is enthroned on the praises of Israel. His feet are on the neck of their enemies, and that's exactly what happens in Egypt. So it's a continuation of development of that idea. To you they cried and were rescued. Why? Because in Exodus we read, I have seen your suffering. I have heard your cries. I have come down. So that reinforces the idea that we're dealing with Exodus here. And you they trusted and were not put to shame, which is is perhaps quite a a romantic gloss on what happened. (laughs) It wasn't wasn't all uh, leeks and onions. But I'm a worm and not a man. Anyone else in the Old Testament described as a worm? Jacob, that is correct. Jacob becomes Israel. The one who strives with man and with God, and who overcomes. So, so that we're drawing in the idea of this is somebody who is associated with Israel, but not Israel in their um, fulfilled sense, as as Israel, but in their pre-fulfilled sense. Also, a worm is 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 the lowest of the low. I mean, you don't get lower than a worm. They live underground. Man is the image bearer of God, so this this is somebody whoever's speaking here, David, who's king. Well, he wasn't king at the time that that he was experiencing these things, but he became king. Um, but also, if it's a type of Christ, then then this is a demonstration that Jesus was exalted and became a lot less than exalted. Which lines up with the, the suffering servant of Isaiah and other texts. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Where have we seen this before? Isn't mm-hmm. it where they say to Jesus, if, if you God, angels to, keep him, to keep down. Yeah. This is a cross scene. This is this is an anticipation of the scene on the cross, where they say, "Well, if 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 he's God, surely the angels can rescue him. If um, surely God will deliver him." And that's I and mean, this is written hundreds of years before Jesus. Quite profound. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Um, Yet, so as soon as you see a yet or a but, you're having a contrast. You're having one picture compared to another. So this picture is not a happy picture. This is a horrible picture. And this is the conclusion of Jesus' life. So Jesus goes to the beginning of his life as a human. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breasts... On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. I don't have time to look at it in detail, but but there's there's a lot in there that we would associate with what happened in in Mary, in in the early days before she gave birth to Jesus, and um, and there's a woman who approaches Jesus and says, "Blessed are the 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 breasts who gave you suck," as the King James version. Um, and, and all of these w- would, have been, would have struck the Hebrew mind of somebody reading centuries later after the death and resurrection of Jesus they would say, hey, this is what this was about. Um, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. And that's exactly right, because his disciples abandoned him. He was alone on the cross. Many bulls encompass me, Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening, and roaring lion. Strong bulls of Bashan. We've discussed this before. Any thoughts? That's correct. The gates of hell. So, the bulls of Bashan are the Ugaritic Mesopotamian um, gods with the 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 head of a bull, and and the. Um, The idea was that that the the gates of hell or the the gates of the gods um, was at the place where Jesus had the discourse with the disciples, where he said to to them, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the, the Christ, the son of the living God, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father is in heaven. I say to you that you are Peter and on this rock, I shall build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And, and what he was talking about was exactly this, that, that actually, uh, the bulls of Bashan would would not be able to withstand the, the advance of the kingdom. Gates are a defensive position. Like a ravening and roaring lion, we see in the New Testament that that's how Satan is described as is prowling around like a ravening and roaring lion. Look at this text. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. Any ideas what that's about? It's the cross. That's physically what happened to him. So the way the crucifixion works is is that um, it places enormous strain on on the um, ligaments and the joints. Um, very common for for um, bones to be pulled out of joint, um, poured out like water. Remember the, the the spear piercing the pericardium, the the um, lining of the heart, which was swollen and, and had water all around it, and blood and water comes gushing forth. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. There's a very strong medical argument to say that Jesus literally died of a broken heart. That as he was carrying the cross the cross beam of the, of, the, of the cross, and he fell, and Simon the S- Cyrene had to help him carry it from there. If you fall with a crossbeam across your back and you fall with that heavy crossbeam and land on, on, on your chest with nothing, no way of stopping, that causes a contusion on the heart, which can uh, manifest in a number of different ways. But one of the ways that it, it can manifest is a subsequent heart attack. And, and I've read some really interesting theories, compelling arguments. Um, that in fact that was the ultimate cause of the death of Jesus, um, and it lines up precisely with this text. I'm not saying it definitely happened, but it's it's an interesting it's an interesting observation. My strength is dried up like a pot shard. My tongue sticks to my jaws. That's what would happen if you were really thirsty. And he cried out on the cross, "I'm thirsty." Um, you lay me in the dust of death. And that's what Jesus did. Specifically, that's what God did to Jesus. Because without death, there was no resurrection. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. In the Hebrew, um, a, a dog was a um, pejorative term for a gentile. Think of the Romans at the foot of the cross. A company of evildoers encircles me, and and if you want you want evidence of that, remember when when the woman comes up to Jesus and says uh, asks him for a miracle, and he says. Uh, Is it proper for me to give food to the dogs? Because she was Gentile. And he wasn't mocking her. He was testing to see if she would engage, and she did. She said, don't even dogs eat the crumbs from the table. This line, they have pierced my hands and feet, is about as direct as you can get. Um, At the time that this was written, crucifixion wasn't a thing. I can count all my bones. Well, there there are two reasons for that. The one is Jesus in in his um, crucified state would have been drawn taut, and you would have been able to see his bones. But more than that. The, the lashes he'd have received across his back would have ripped all the meat, all the flesh off his bones, and you would have been able to see his bones on his back. They stare and gloat over me, they divide, pardon me, <coughs> my garments among them, and for my clothing, or for his cloak, they cast lots. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus. It's, it's quite profound. But your Lord... Do not be far off. O oh, you, my help! come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dog, referring to Gentiles. Save me from the mouth of the lion, referring to Satan. You have rescued me from the horns of wild oxen, referring to the the bulls of Bashan, or the, the lowercase g gods. Listen to this. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Um, Jesus is our elder brother. Um, the Gospel of John makes that clear. Read read John 17. It's, it's, it's apparent. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. That is not only a reference to the, the called out ones of Israel, but also the church to come. You who fear the Lord, praise him, all you offspring of Jacob, again, um, Israel, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. So, this we will see, um, the, the commonwealth of Israel is expanded, if, if you read the book of Romans, um, read Hebrews. Read Galatians. The commonwealth of Israel is expanded by the inclusion of Gentile believers, and and that's what this text refers to. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. There's an interesting there's an interesting shift here. Look here. For he has not despised or abhorred. The affliction of the afflicted. Who's the he? It's the Lord. He has not hidden his face from him. Who's the him? Can't be the same head. It can't be the same guy. There's a shift. Do you see it? It's Jesus. He has heard when he cried to him. From you comes praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. This is Jesus speaking. From you comes my praise. My praise. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. Whatever Jesus promised to do before God, he did. And he did it before those who feared him. Mm-hmm. This isn't, yeah? He has heard when he cried to him. him. Jesus. So, if so he, a point, why didn't he make Well, uh, uh, <laughs> Hebrew is not written with capital letters. Um, the uh, Jesus makes the same point when he refers to a, a messianic psalm of David. He says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Remember Jesus says that? It's the same kind of shift. He says, well, who's he talking about? <laughs> He's talking about me. Yeah. Yes, jump in. Yeah, I, I believe it is, but it's, it's also blurred because Paul, Paul writes and he says that these things were hidden, because if they were not hidden, they, the powers and principalities, would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And Paul goes on to say that we get the privilege to look into these things. Jesus said of these scriptures, in John, he says to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures, because in them you think you'll find salvation, but they speak of me. This is a great example. Um, The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Think of Jesus speaking to the crowds in Galilee. He says, come to me, you who are hungry and thirsty, and I will feed you. Um, He says, I am the bread from heaven. If you eat my flesh, you will never be hungry again. There's, There's just no question that this is absolutely pregnant. With, with the promise of the gospel in the mouth of Jesus when he arrives. I, I, I'm, I can only imagine the disciples, once they get over the shock of his resurrection, revisiting this text and saying, hey, Jesus said this on the cross. What does the rest of this psalm say? And they'd have been familiar with it because the psalms were sung. They're sung as, as, um, as we sing hymns. They, they were sung. In the temple, they were sung in homes at, at Sabbath. Um, this is something that they would have been very familiar with. Um, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. Um, that's the language Jesus used. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. See, this is massively significant because this tells us that God's plan of redemption was never intended only to be for Israel. All the families of the nations, and and that can also be read Gentiles, all the families of the Gentiles or all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. This this was a promise that that God's redemptive story included always the Gentile nations, and it's also a significant thing that it's a reversal of. Um, of Psalm 82, where God pronounces judgment on on the gods (lowercase g) who rule over the nations and do not give do not rule with justice, and the, and the 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 gospel and Jesus' message is very much about the redemption of the nations who had been ruled badly by uh, lowercase g gods deities. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. This is such an incredible statement. Look here. All who go down to the dust is is all human beings. You agree? Adam from dust. We were formed. To dust you will return. So there's there's no question that that's um, what that refers to. However... It can also be, if you read Psalm 82, be a picture of of the deities, the the lowercase S, sons of God, who are cast down to the underworld and who die like people, like humans. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship, before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even even the the uh, heavenly beings in rebellion against God will bow to him as they face judgment. even the one who could not keep himself alive that's such a there's so many ways of reading that I'm not quite sure which way to go um, it's probably Satan It, it could be others. Could be Judas. Yeah, could well be Judas. Lots of opportunity there, not sure. Posterity shall serve him, so future generations will serve Jesus. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations, so the generational thing. They shall come and proclaim his people, look at this, to people yet unborn. Who's that? Who are people yet unborn? Is us. It's us, it's the Church. He has Tetelesta. He has done it. So What's interesting about uh, this psalm? This is Psalm 22. The very next psalm is Psalm 23, mm-hmm. and and is is the psalm which we're all familiar with. It, it's the psalm of the Good Shepherd, who is Jesus. And if you read Psalm 23 in the light of Psalm 22, it changes everything. So, um, and, David's the shepherd king. and David's the Shepherd King. Exactly right. And I don't think that that's a mistake. I don't think that those two Psalms were put next to each other by accident. So I hope that that was helpful. I, I hope that you have some questions for me before we wrap up. But the intention was, as we did last week, to to exegete a text from the New Testament. Last, last week, this week, to ex, exegete one from the Old, and hopefully give you some skills to to dive into the Bible yourself and get it done. Any questions? Yeah. What was you said it was related to the. Okay. So I, I know that AMAR the term um, of It's the same thing. The same. same thing. Exactly that. So if you look at. Um Jeepers, I hope I get this right. I'm, I'm, I may get it horribly, horribly wrong. Let me just have a look. A quick look. Yeah. Since I'm eighty-two, verse fifteen. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many-peak mountain, mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with hatred, O many-peak mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Speaking of Zion. Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai, where the law was given, is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high. and you'll, You'll remember this text from Paul. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and received gifts from among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. And the picture was, um, of leading a host of of captives in his train, was that Jesus' death um, accomplished defeat over all the gods of the nations, and just as, as a conquering king would walk through the capital city, and have the captured kings um, in chains behind him. So this is the image of Jesus having uh, conquered all, walking with the, the, the defeated powers and principalities in chains behind him. This is uh, Psalm 68 v- from verse 15. So yeah, there's there's a really interesting book on it called Reversing Hermon. Uh, Reversing Herman, H E R M O N. Uh, yeah, Reversing Herman. Uh by a guy called uh, Michael Heiser. Uh, it's it's whew, it's a bit of a read. Uh it's quite complicated. But but he looks at, at this kind of imagery in a lot of detail and it becomes clearer. Um so uh, in the passage he uh refers to the Gentiles as dots. It's not that he was, um, it was was a euphemism, not a very positive one, but um, it depends on context. So um, Joshua and Caleb, Caleb means dog. I know because we had a cat and we called him Caleb and he would growl and he would play fetch and he behaved in every way like a dog, Um, but but it, it I believe that Caleb was called Caleb because he was both loyal and determined, um, and and went wholeheartedly with Joshua. And um, that's an interesting picture because Joshua is um, is the English translation of Yeshua, which is Jesus. So Jesus, uh, um, Mary would call Jesus Yeshua. And, and um, Joshua's mom would call him Yeshua, and you wouldn't be able to tell the difference by the sound. That means God is salvation, or God saves. Um, so so the, the fact that you had a dog with Yeshua in, uh, in the redemptive story of the Exodus and the entering of the Promised Land um, isn't all bad. No, I just wanted to know the context, because kind of, I know some people don't look at the context. and then Yeah. Look! Look! The, the Bible is an ancient Near and Middle Eastern text, and it is what it is. It's not politically correct at all. Mm-hmm. It just isn't. It isn't, and it doesn't. It doesn't pretend to be. Isn't it also true that, that many times Jesus says something in order to fulfill the words that that are in this text? Yeah. So it's just and to provoke. Yeah. To. And and I, be, you know, we read the Bible in a tone of voice. I believe he was always kind, kind, yeah. When when he was having those conversations, less kind in the temple with the whips. Hmm. <laughs> Mm. And directly after that, uh, after him, Elijah having such such victory, and um, he runs away from, from Jezebel. Can you explain the how did it work in ours? Okay. And the symbolism of it, because like of, like, of what he achieved, and then he runs off, runs away from one person. I, I can absolutely relate. I I think. I think that when when we are used by God to do something significant, you get the blues, and you get hammered, and you get hammered by the enemy. But you get the blues; you uh, you are poured out, and and it's it's in those times where we are spent that that we lose perspective. I mean, I remember I remember chatting to. Uh, A very, very prominent preacher who you will all know, I'm not going to use his name, was chatting to his wife, and uh, she said to me that that every Monday morning he would take the wanted ads and, and look for a job. <laughs> <laughs> and she used to get so angry with him every Monday morning, you're called to more than this, you know, This is like, and it was preacher's blues on a Monday. And, and that's the thing, I think, I think there's something in pouring ourselves out in God that, um, that we're at our weakest um, in the next moment, in the next season. And that's when you have to guard yourself in Christ, I think. And, and it doesn't surprise me, um, you know, o- often, often we have the courage to face the mountain. But to overcome a pebble in your shoe takes, takes courage and determination and, and the discipline to take your shoe off and throw the stupid thing away. Um, so it's, it's not the mountain that defeats us, it's the pebble in your shoe. And that's what I think Jezebel was for him. And, and what he needed, look what he needed. He needed a nap and a snack. <laughs> Everything looks better after a nap and a snack and, yeah, and something to drink. Exactly. And, and God, God redirecting him into his purposes. Still a small voice and he's off again. Yeah. Any other questions? No questions. I'm going to wrap it up. Thank you so much for joining us for this, on this journey. It's been cool. Thank you. It's a ministry of encouragement when you arrive. <laughs> Thank you. Much appreciated.